I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. And thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that uh, now, by your spirit, and through your word, you will speak to each one of us. Uh, that you would change our hearts, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thomas Cranmer was a great English reformer who lived in the uh, 16th century. He was the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the one to whom we owe our Book of Common Prayer, uh, the first edition of the Articles. He was a great one who tried to reform the church and bring it back to the Bible. Who got rid of many of the old superstitions and old practices that came from church tradition that contradicted scripture. He worked to get the Bible back into churches because at one stage the church had banned the Bible. You see, the Bible says that all scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But the, the church says, well, we can't trust normal people with the Bible. And so the Bible was a banned book, which is very convenient because a lot of the church teaching and what the Bible was teaching was unfortunately very different. Cranmer worked to get church services in English because at that stage all church services were in Latin and no one except the priest knew what was going on. Maybe the priest even didn't know, I don't know. You see, in the Bible it says not to speak in unknown languages or tongues in church because people won't understand. Therefore, if we don't understand, we won't be able to be built up. But tradition said, the Mass is always conducted in Latin. Cramner worked to expound the doctrine of justification by faith. Because the Bible tells us that we're put right with God by trusting in Jesus. But the church at the time had forgotten this, and they were teaching people to trust various rituals and ceremonies and, and traditions of the church instead. Cramner worked to reform the Lord's Supper because the Bible tells us that we're to remember the death of Jesus in faith but the church at the time was leading people to believe that the bread and wine literally changed into the body and blood of Christ and so they developed all kinds of traditions of, of worshipping the bread and wine which is idolatry and offering it to God as a sacrifice which, which is a mockery of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross Cramner knew very well that the church and her traditions must be reformed by scripture. And as Archbishop of Canterbury, he took great risks to reform it. Now, he wasn't perfect. Uh, he made mistakes, made a number of mistakes, some big ones. But we look back at him as someone, a great one, who sought to bring the Church of England back to sound biblical faith. And so he was, in a sense, the founder of Anglicanism. And for all his efforts... Archbishop Thomas Cramner was finally burnt at the stake. A martyr for the Reformation, but really a martyr for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. One of Cramner's profound insights is summed up in this saying, that which the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That which the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And it's true, isn't it? If we want something, we'll find a way of making it right. 
even if it's blatantly obvious it isn't right, we find a way of excusing our behavior because the will chooses what the heart desires and the mind comes along and justifies it. In the Bible passage that we're looking at today, Jesus points people away from external religion to religion of the heart. You may recall from last week that, that Jesus was up in the region of Galilee, up in the north of Israel. Uh, and the, but, but he receives, uh, at the beginning of this passage, a, a group of visit from, from a, a, a distinguished group of people from, from Jerusalem. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Pharisees, they were a, a distinct group within Judaism. Uh, they strictly tried to keep the law of Moses. But not only the law of Moses, but a whole other lot of laws as well, from their tradition. Highly respected men, highly regarded as, as religious men. They were scrupulous, unscru- no, scrupulous in their observance of the law. Right? But they did tend to be self-righteous and look down on others. And because they were legalists, and they had added all these other laws to the law of the Bible, the Old Testament, they, they could find loopholes in the law, to get away from doing things that God really wanted them to do. The other group that's mentioned here is the teachers of the law, or if some translations have call it scribes. Right? Some people call them lawyers, um, but that's no slight on them. Um, that th- they were a group whose purpose it was to preserve, transmit, teach, and apply the law. Many of them were Pharisees as well. Some of them weren't. But they also, like, they were also, they added to God's word the oral law, tradition. And they made the oral law as important as the real law, because that's the interpreter of it, you see. And so they were experts in these uh, Old Testament law and its traditional derivatives. And so these group of religious leaders, these pious men, these experts in the Old Testament law and the Jewish traditions, come to see Jesus. Now they came to him from Jerusalem. Remember where Jesus was at the time? He's up north by Galilee. And so these guys, they travel all the way from Jerusalem, all the way up from the capital, on foot. And what do they do when they come? Well, they ask Jesus why his disciples don't wash their hands. It sounds a bit ridiculous, isn't it? You don't travel all the way to say, you forgot to wash your hands. But see, the question is not an innocent one. It's just, oh, I was just wondering if you didn't wash, why they didn't wash their hands. No, no, no. It's a question that's trying to get at Jesus. Trying to show that he didn't follow their law. So trying to discredit him. Because they'd heard about him. About all the things he was doing. The crowds that were following him. And they were worried. And so they come to confront Jesus. But instead of doing it directly, they do it indirectly. Now, you want to go for the boss? You go. You don't, you don't, don't go for the boss. It's too high. You just go for one of the other ones, you know, one of the lower ones, and catch out. Right? So they don't criticize him. They criticize his disciples. And so they ask, first to that question we mentioned just now. I say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, this actually something to be said about washing your hands before you eat, isn't it? Right? If your hands are dirty and you're going to eat with them, well, it's a good idea to wash your hands. Right? If you have really greasy hands and you went for banana leaf right, and you ate with it, that, that's not so good. There are good practical reasons why you'd want to wash your hands before you eat. But that's not why the Pharisees washed their hands 
And that's not why Jesus and his disciples didn't. Right? It's got nothing really to do with um, that. Okay? There's nothing, nothing wrong with washing hands, nothing wrong with not washing hands. It just depends on whether they're dirty. See, the Pharisees didn't wash their hands because they were dirty. The Pharisees were washing it because of the tradition of the elders. They were doing a ritual washing. It wasn't for hygiene, it was a ceremonial wash. Right? A washing for religious reasons. In order to make someone clean before God. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, the ceremonial washing is only commanded by God on two occasions. In Exodus chapter 30, priests are meant to wash their hands before they enter the tent of meeting. Right? It's the holy place where they meet with God, they're meant to wash their hands beforehand. And the other time of washing their hands in the Old Testament is Leviticus 15, where a man with a discharge can transmit uncleanness unless he washes his hands. There's no command from God to, to wash your hands. There's certainly no command from God to wash your hands every time you eat. Right? Nothing to say, you shall not wash your hands before you eat, or anything like that. But nothing to say, you have to. So, Really, if you want to clean your hands before you eat, because they're dirty and you want to eat, that should be fine. And if you don't want to, that should be fine as well. There's no law compelling you to wash your hands, so you don't have to do it. See, it's God's word that tells us how to be saved and how to live. If you can't prove something from the Bible, then you don't have to do it. And you can't say that someone else has to do it in order to be saved. Because it's the Bible that's the word of God. And anything else that's not the word of God is the tradition of men. And this hand washing that these Pharisees were into was just that. It's not commanded by God in the Bible. Added by the tradition. But now they come to Jesus and they complain that his disciples are not following the tradition. As if the tradition was that so important. And, and Jesus refused to accept the assumption in the question. He turns it back on them. In fact, he, he criticizes them ferociously and rightly so. Because they are so concerned with other people breaking traditions, which are man-made anyway, that they themselves are actually breaking God's own law. In fact, by adding the authority of tradition to the authority of God's word, they diminish the authority of God's word and make their traditions more important than And so Jesus attacks them with this example, verse 3. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you mother might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So here's an example. God thinks that honoring of parents is very important. Right? Honoring them means looking after them, includes looking after them, providing for them in their old age. And so we need to make sure that parents looked after, that their needs are met. That's the right thing to do by God. It's a very important thing. But the Pharisees had a, had a way out of it, you see, as a legal loophole. It seems that what you could do was to say, your property, and all your money, belongs to God. It's devoted to God. It's a gift devoted to God. And if it's a gift devoted to God, then, well, you don't have to look after your parents with it. You're free from other obligations with this thing that's devoted to God. Now, it doesn't actually mean that you have to give it to a temple, the temple or anything like that. So it's just a declaration. It's an oath. It's a, it's a legal fiction. Right? You make an oath that this is God's, but there's no like time frame which you, with which you have to hand it over, so you could just still spend it on yourself. Which means you get out of having to use it for your parents. 
Your friends, if you want to be legalistic about things, you can always find loopholes, can't you? The Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, they added tradition to the word of God, made lots and lots and lots of laws, and they kept them legalistically. And in the end, God's intention, that people would honor and therefore look after their parents, was evaded. The word of God was nullified by the traditions of men. And Jesus had caustic words for such people. Verse 7. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus was quoting here the words of the prophet Isaiah, which we read in our Old Testament reading today. And when you read the context of Isaiah, he was actually specifically talking about the people of Jerusalem. Uh, so now we know why Matthew actually remembers to tell us that the Pharisees and teachers of the law came up from there, you see. And in this, this prophecy about the people of Jerusalem, Isaiah talks about the fact that God would, would seal their eyes and cover their ears, make them ready for judgment. The whole of Isaiah's vision will be hidden from them. And, and then God says the words that are quoted here. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their teachings are but rules made by men. And you know, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they were indeed people whose hearts were far from God. They did not love God, because if they loved God, they would have obeyed His word. Instead, they loved their religion. They loved their so-called worship. They loved their traditions. They loved their man-made laws. They loved their money. They loved themselves, but they did not love God. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are about rules made by men. Friends, there are two dangers that we need to look out for, uh, that we can see here. The first teaching, the first danger is the danger of tradition overtaking scripture. The teachings of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were man-made. And they valued them above the teaching of Scripture. Friends, to what extent do we value our traditions more than God's Word? It's not wrong to have tradition. It's a good thing to have tradition. But it's wrong to place it in a place of authority beside God's Word. Always kind of come under. Uh, we saw just now about churches who do that. The church in the Middle Ages was an institution so blinded by tradition that uh, the gospel, in a large extent, was lost from the people. All kinds of traditions added to God's word until the word became completely obscured by them. And so we needed a reformation. We needed someone to say, let's get back to the scriptures. And so that's what Cramner and, and others insisted on. It's the, it's the Bible, not our tradition that's authoritative. Our tradition must always be critiqued in light of the scripture. And if traditions need to go, then they need to go. And friends, that process of reformation must continue. We're not there yet. We continue to be sinful people who attempt to subvert God's authority and replace it with our own tradition. And so one of the slogans of the reformation was, the reformed church must always be reforming. The reformed church must always be reforming. 
we need to test everything we do, even here at SMAC, against the Scriptures. And we need to be willing to change. We cannot say, this is the way we do things, and so it's final. We cannot think, oh, that's the tradition of our denomination, so it must be right. We can't declare, we must do this because it's our Anglican tradition, or it's because our, our tradition as evangelicals. As if that's, that's, that's the end of it. No, 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 friends. Jesus always taught us to test our traditions by God's word. Tradition, even Christian tradition, Anglican tradition, evangelical tradition, it is man-made. can be helpful, it may be wrong. We've got to place it firmly under God's authority and let God have the final say about our tradition. The second danger we see here is the danger of hypocrisy. The Pharisees, their lips were full of God's praises. They honoured God with their lips, but their hearts, God said, were far from me. And Jesus called them hypocrites. And friends, it is possible for us to come to church and to sing God's praises, to pray, to look very pious and keen, and to have a heart that's far away from God. It's exactly what the Pharisees were like. They were the most religious and strictest people of their day. But religion and law were there as a substitute for a heart of love and obedience to God. They did not love and obey God, they loved and obeyed rules. As soon as you have rules, as we said, you have loopholes. And if you're simply a law follower, you will use every loophole to find out how little you can do. That's like if you're a, you know, you're a big company, you're dealing with another big company, what do you do? You get your lawyers to pour over your contracts to work out how little you have to pay the other company, don't you? And if there's any way of paying less, you'll do it. Right? It's not like that with your friends. You know, hey, I paid for a rotitolo last week, it cost 80 cents more than Nasi Lemak you paid for this week, so next week you can compensate me, compensate me by buying a drink. You don't do that. Right? not calculating, legalistic with your friends. You want to be generous. If you really love God, then why would you want to wriggle out of obeying His word? If you really love God, why would you be looking for loopholes so that you don't have to do what He says? If you really love God, why not look for ways to obey Him? To, to ways to, to put His word into practice instead of working out ways we can, we can legally avoid it. See, the attitude of the Pharisees betrayed their hearts. They wanted to be religious. They kept the rules that they had made up. But their hearts were far from God. And so they used tradition and legal precedence to excuse themselves from obeying God's word. Let's not be like that with God. So having attacked these Pharisees and these teachers of the law to their face, Jesus attacks them publicly to the people. Calls a crowd together, the people who are attracted to him, they probably still think highly of the Pharisees, and he teaches them what uncleanness really is. Because the Pharisees were saying, if you don't wash your hands, you're unclean. Here's what he says to them in verse 10 and 11. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. So being unclean, Jesus says, is not external, it's internal. It's not about whether you wash your hands, it's about whether your heart is right with God. 
It's not what goes in your mouth to make you unclean. It's what comes out of it. And by implication, the Pharisees, not the disciples, are the ones who are really unclean. Now, the Pharisees must have realized that Jesus was having a go at them, that he was implying that they were unclean because of what came out of their mouths, because uh, they were outraged. And the word of this got back to the disciples, and they took it to Jesus, and they were all worried. See, verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And the answer Jesus gives is very important. He doesn't seem to mind that the Pharisees were affected. He doesn't say, oh no, I regret I hurt their feelings. Oh, the last thing I ever want to do is hurt someone's feelings. No, no, no. See, there are times when we have to be strong. And we have to say what needs to be said, even if it's things. See, Jesus did it. Sometimes we do too, too. Because false teachers who lead people astray need to be stopped. And that's a loving thing to do, because they're leading people astray. And Jesus helps his disciples who are so worried about these Pharisees to to see them for who they really are. Firstly, he tells them that they don't really belong to God. And they are facing judgment. Look at verse 13. He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Every plant my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. In Isaiah 60, now, the prophet Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, speaks about the time when God's kingdom will come. God will come to save his people. And as he, as he talks about the glory that God's people will enjoy when, when God's promises are fulfilled, he says this in verse 21. He says, Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. They are the shoots I have planted, the work of my hands, the display of my splendor. See, God's people that, that God has chosen, he has planted. They're the ones who who stand, who inherit all that. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah uses the same kind of imagery when he talks about, again, the time when Israel will be restored and, and through him God makes these wonderful promises in, in uh, Jeremiah 32. As they'll be my people, I'll be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action. See the heart bit there? So they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. So in both these texts, God plants his people, shows that they are his, that they will dwell in his land, his presence forever. But Jesus says these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they are not ones the Heavenly Father has planted. They are weeds in God's garden. They, they may be Jews, but they don't inherit these promises to Israel. They are Jews on the outside, but they haven't been circumcised on the inside. They don't belong to God. They, they don't have a part in this new creation that God will bring in. They don't have a part in the, in the kingdom that God has promised. Not all Israel, as Paul would later put it, is Israel. And so Jesus says, they will be pulled up by the roots. Which reminds us, doesn't it? as it would have reminded the disciples of the parable Jesus told a little bit earlier in chapter 13 of Matthew. The parable of the wheat and the weeds. Remember, it's just a, it's a simple story about wheat and weeds growing together in the field, but the wheat was planted by the owner and the weeds was planted by an enemy. It wasn't planted by the owner. And when the time of the harvest came, the wheat would be gathered, but the weeds would be pulled up and burnt. Pulled up. And he's saying, look, the ones who belong to the kingdom, 
the ones who don't live together in this world and the day of judgment when Jesus comes then the ones who who, 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 who belong to the evil one will be poured out and burnt now Jesus alludes to that here he says look these guys these Pharisees the teachers of the Lord they were not planted by the Father they will be pulled out by the roots and burnt these false teachers these religious leaders that people who pretend to honor God well their hearts are far from, far from him who are fastidious about religious observance but whose hearts are unclean on the inside they will face the judgment of hell that's what he's saying and so Jesus tells his disciples not to follow them he warns them to avoid false teachers because if they listen to them that will only lead them to their own destruction as well verse 14 leave them he says leave them they are blind guides if a blind man leads a blind man both will fall into a pit see these Pharisees and teachers of the law that they claim to be teachers of the blind but they themselves were blind to the truth they were not true teachers they were false ones and, and the people they lead they would lead to disaster we've got to be really careful who we follow haven't we we must not follow false teachers don't follow those who will add to the word of God don't follow those who seem religious but whose hearts are not close to God don't follow those who are unclean on the inside for they will lead you to destruction it's a scary thought isn't it you can be so religious and so wrong if you find a false teacher run away now remember before this little conversation that the disciples have with Jesus about the Pharisees Jesus has told the crowd that um, it's what comes out of the heart that makes someone unclean but Peter it seems didn't really understand it that's so what he asks in verse 15 he says Peter said explain the parable to us and look at Jesus' response in verse 16 are you so dull? Jesus asked them are you still so dull? Right. now cell group leaders right, if someone asks a question in cell group right, this is not what you say <laughs> right, that's not a standard response to questions right. well, there's, something, there's something more here Right? Then, then Jesus is just getting thrust. Right? It's not like Jesus is in a bad mood that day, so he has a go at the Pharisees when they come, and has a go at his own disciples when they come. No, no, no. Right. The word translated dull means without understanding. No, not understanding. Right? Remember back in Matthew 13, the, 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 the parable of the sower. Right? The seed that falls on the, on, the, on the path is those who hear the message of the kingdom, but they, they don't understand it, and it's taken away. In fact, Matthew 13 tells us the reason Jesus spoke in parables was that some people would not understand. He's hiding things from some people. But the secrets of the kingdom are given to the disciples so they will understand. The disciples are meant to understand, but, but here they don't. Which is a bit surprising because Jesus has been talking fairly plainly, I think. It wasn't like the parables of chapter 13 where you know, this stands for that and you need to find the key and Jesus needs to tell you what's the key to work out what Jesus means. I mean, given all that Jesus already told them Peter and the other disciples should be able to work it out themselves but they can't and so Jesus is surprised that they are still like the crowds lacking understanding then he'll explain it to them verse 17 don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes in the stomach and then out of the body but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart and these make a man unclean for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. See friends, Jesus is saying, you eat with unwashed hands, doesn't make you unclean. Right? Food goes into your mouth, and then out the other end. Right? Doesn't really do anything, make you clean or unclean really. Right? As the Apostle Paul will say later, the kingdom of God is not a matter of uh, eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not about that. What really makes you unclean is what comes out of the mouth. Because what comes out of the mouth is what comes out of the heart. And our hearts are evil. Like the Old Testament tells us in Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? And it's what comes out of our corrupt hearts that makes us unclean. We have evil thoughts and murderer, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that make us unclean because they are symptoms of what's in our heart. Let me give you a bit of medical advice. If you ever get chest pain, you need to go to a hospital straight away. Because you might be having a heart attack. Chest pain, shortness of breath there, symptoms of heart attack. But the problem is deeper than the symptoms. It's because the problem is a blockage in your coronary artery. Now, when you have a heart attack, you don't just take morphine for the pain. Morphine is useful. It might help the symptoms, but it doesn't treat the problem. And you certainly don't take vitamins for a heart attack. Okay? Because that's not going to help the symptoms or the problem. It will just distract you from doing something proper about it. Just like chest pain is a symptom of a bad coronary artery. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, they're all symptoms of a bad heart. And the solution to that has to be something deeper than washing hands. Right? Getting picky about washing hands, that's, it's like taking vitamins for the heart attack. Right? It's nothing better than a distraction. Treating the symptoms, dealing with issues like adultery and immorality and theft and murder, that's more important, isn't it? But even that's not enough. That's like the morphine. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And until that is dealt with, the problems will remain. The symptoms will recur. And so being unclean comes from sinful behavior, not eating with unwashed hands. And sinful behavior comes from a sinful heart. And a sinful heart needs a radical solution. Who can clean our sinful hearts? How can we be cleansed? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us here, does he? He just leaves it here. At the level of problem. I think he wants us to realize the problem, to sit with it for a bit. He wants us to know that hypocritical religious tradition-based solutions are simply not enough because it's a matter of the heart but if the disciples had gone back to the Old Testament they, they would see that only God can solve this problem and God had indeed promised that one day he would do so he had promised Israel that one day he would gather them together and restore them to the land and he said this in Ezekiel 36 he says I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit in you and move you 
to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, God was going to do radical heart surgery. It's something we human beings could never do ourselves. God would do it. and He would clean His people on the inside. He would wash away their sins. He would remove their guilt and impurity. He would give them a new heart. He would give them His Spirit. So they will no longer be a people who are just keeping the law from the outside. Who look for loopholes in the law. It will be people who really obey and love and serve God from the inside. People with new hearts. And friends, you and I, if we belong to Christ, then we've had that experience. We've, we've been cleansed. We've been forgiven. Not because we've earned it or deserved it, because, but because Jesus died on the cross in our place. And if we trust Him, then His sacrifice on the cross takes away our sin, makes us clean. Hebrews 9, verse 13 and 14 talks about that. It's about the, you know, the blood of goats and bulls and, and ashes of the hyphus sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they outwardly clean. But what about the inside? Well, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living and true God? the blood of Jesus that cleanses our consciences on the inside someone said that nothing should satisfy the conscience of man that does not satisfy the conscience of God the holiness of God and friends the, the holiness of God was indeed satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus it's taken away all our sins it's his blood his, his sacrificial death that, that cleanses us as we sang just now for he took our place in redeeming sacrifice and so we have confidence to enter God's presence. Our hearts have been cleansed and no longer considered defiled and dirty. And so Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 10 verse 19 to 22, it says, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and in having our bodies washed with pure water. And so we are cleaned up on the inside through Jesus, through his death for us. And friends, not only have we been cleansed and forgiven, but, but we've been given God's Spirit who, who writes his law in our hearts. And we don't just obey him because we have to, we obey him because he's given us new hearts which, which long to do that. We want to serve Jesus from the heart. Our religion is not a religion of the Pharisees. It's not a matter of rites and rituals, of washings and ceremonies, of, of rules and regulations. It's not about letting tradition overturn scripture. It's not about paying God our legalistic dues, no more, no less. Let's never go back to that. Biblical Christianity is religion of the heart. A heart that's forgiven. A heart that is cleansed. A heart that loves God and therefore seeks to obey His word. But friends, there's more to come. Because while God's law is written on our hearts, and we want to obey Him, we still have our sinful nature with which we struggle every day, don't we? We have hearts that long to obey, but we still don't do it the way we want to. But one day, God promises, that battle will be over. And when Christ returns at the end of the age, our sinful natures will be gone. Our hearts will be transformed completely these blessings will be given in their fullness and we shall be completely pure we shall be like him but we shall see him as he is 
Friends, let's look forward to that day and press on to it. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you so much for giving your Son to die for us so that we can be cleansed from our sins and acceptable to you. You are a holy God and we are sinful people and yet through the blood of Jesus, his death on the cross, you've opened the way for us to be clean. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit to move our hearts from the inside to love you and to, and to obey you. Please help us to do that. Please help us never to go back to legalistic religion where um, we're not serving you from the heart and just, just on the outside. Please not help us to avoid that. Help us not to let those traditions or anything else uh, crowd out your word from our lives. And help us, Lord, to, uh, to live in love for you and for others as we look forward to the day when you will come and, and transform us completely so that our hearts truly and fully reflect your heart and we will see you in all your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.